Uh, let's just uh, start with the introduction that Ezekiel gives, and we'll talk a little bit about him and the context that we're dealing with historically. So Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and I'll just have, have you read it like we usually do. In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kibar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Uzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the Kibar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Okay, so this really kind of sets the stage for what we're going to be looking at. It was the 30th year of what? <laughs> you know, that, that's a rather odd way to start a book. It was the 30th year and not reference it to something. I suspect that the simplest and best explanation, it was his 30th year. He was 30 years old. I would suggest that especially because we learned that he was uh, of a priestly descent and the priest would begin their service in the temple, at least in Numbers 4, at 30 years old. So maybe the idea is that at this time, when if he had been in Jerusalem, he would have begun to serve in the temple, suddenly he sees these visions of God. And really, Ezekiel begins the book with the event that sort of catapulted him into the prophetic role. Uh, we start out with quite a bang here in this first chapter. And it makes sense uh, that that we'd start in that place. Now, where is he? He is not in Jerusalem. He's by the river Kibar, which means he has been taken into Babylonian captivity. That demise of Judah was a drawn-out, painful process. Uh, Assyria had been their arch enemy, but then Babylon conquered Assyria and, and, and beat back Egyptian attempts to, to kind of prop up Assyria as a weak buffer state. And in about 605 or 606, Nebuchadnezzar, the general of the army and later emperor, came through and captured Jerusalem. And he took some of the brightest young men, you remember Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and uh, made uh, Jehoiakim be uh, a servant. He, he paid tribute to Babylon and all that. Jehoiakim later rebels and quits paying the tribute and allies himself with, uh, with Egypt. And so the Babylonians come in again about 597, and defeat them again, and they take the reigning king, Jehoiachin, and Ezekiel, and a bunch of other people, into captivity. Um, and so that was, that was when Ezekiel went into captivity, with that second wave of captives. They, uh, they put kind of their own puppet king, Jehoiachin's uncle, Zedekiah, on the throne, and he was a very weak king, and they intended for him to be a weak king, but he even vacillated in his loyalty to Babylon. And the Babylonians ended up, in about 586, overrunning Jerusalem, uh, conquering the, the city, destroying the walls, the temple, and taking virtually everyone else 
into exile. So Ezekiel's in this middle way. He's about five years and five months into the exile. It's going to be another five years or and some months when Jerusalem falls. So he's about midway between when he was taken into captivity and when the city of Jerusalem would actually fall and everybody else would come into uh, captivity. Now he says that he saw visions of God. This is a, a very visual book. You know, the apocalyptic books, which is just our term for that, but those, those visual books like Zechariah and Daniel and Revelation, they, they do a lot with images. You know, and it'll help if you can imagine things and see them in your mind. Uh, wow, there's a lot of imagery in this book. And uh, so that's, that's what he's signaling. People remember pictures normally better than they do words. And uh, so, so here he is in in uh, the land of the Chaldeans. Chaldean and Babylonian is basically used uh, interchangeably here. And uh, he's he's going to be then announcing the message of God to the captives. Now there is already a prophet of God, a very uh, outstanding prophet of God, that's announcing announcing God's message back in Jerusalem. Who was that, by the way? Jeremiah. So Jeremiah's got a work to do among those who are still in Jerusalem. Ezekiel's doing very much a parallel work uh, among those who are already in captivity. God's got his messengers, his spokesmen, in both places to the Jews that were there. Ezekiel is a name that means God strengthens or God hardens. And uh, there's only two places in the whole Bible, if I'm not mistaken, that mention the name Ezekiel. One of them's here, and one of them's in Ezekiel 24. This is not a prophet that gets called by name over and over again, like some of them uh, would tend to do. Uh, this is this is one that uh, we've only got those two specific references to the name Ezekiel. Uh, God's got sort of his own name for Ezekiel, and we'll come across that in a minute. Now it says in verse uh, 3, that when the word of the Lord came to him, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kibar, that there the hand of the Lord came upon him. That's a pretty important there. There the hand of the Lord came upon him. Um, God is not restricted to the temple in Jerusalem. He is capable of showing up wherever he wants, even in the land of the Chaldeans, among these captives. Now, the pagan idea of the gods was that every god kind of had his jurisdiction. And so, you know, you had some gods in some places and some gods in other places. And and the fact that God suddenly pops up over there by the river Kibar is opening up again their understanding to the idea God is not limited to one place. Now, if you thought that God was only in the temple in Jerusalem and you got sent into exile in Babylon, you've really been banished from the presence of the Lord. But the fact that God's hand was on Ezekiel in Babylon, there, then that's an indication that that's not the case and God is mobile. And we'll see that as a major theme of Ezekiel. So the hand of God ends up coming upon Ezekiel and sort of transporting him to see the vision that uh, he's to see. Thoughts or comments 
on those first three verses and on this introduction to Ezekiel. Joe. You mentioned the fact that starting here, <clears throat> priestly family, the good application here is he is as faithful to talk about it. Then looking forward to the service, he's not going to do that. And so for, uh, for us, we may have some plan in mind down the road. God has something prepared that's done for us. And are we going to be okay with our hopes being disappointed and fitting into whatever role and work God has for us. That's a good point because it doesn't always work the way we think it should. Other thoughts? Alright, so what does he see? 4 to 14. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, and their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion. On the left side was the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading out upward, each wing touching that of the creature on either side, and each had two other wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire, like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures, and it was bright, and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. Wow! What would happen if you woke up one day and you saw this? Now, you know... There's just a lot in this. We need to, first of all, be impressed by the overall vision. You don't want to peel back the Mona Lisa brushstroke at a time. So in some ways, you just need to, wow, that's amazing. But there is a lot of specific things he says here that contribute to the picture that are important for us. First of all, you see this storm wind coming from the north. And the storm is uh, powerful, it's dynamic. Coming out of the north, the judgment of God typically in this time period came out of the north. That's where those uh, 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 powers, uh, empires in the Fertile Crescent would, would come into Israel out of the north. So that's kind of sinister, it's kind of menacing. God is coming to wage war against his people. That's what we're really seeing here. And uh, you saw this, this fire flashing for the bright light, glowing metal. So you, this is bright, it's glowing, it's scintillating perhaps. And then he settles on looking at these figures that, well, you've never seen anything quite like these. These four living beings. They were kind of human-like. And um, so, so you try, start trying to look at these beings and figure out what they look like. All of them had four faces. 
So, like, they got a face turned every direction. That's really kind of odd to try to think about, but if you can kind of see that. So, what they look like face-wise depend on what direction you were. <laughs> you know, they, you'd look see a different face whatever direction you were at. Uh, they had four wings, uh, and he just starts going through and explaining. Now, you might notice as he does that, that he'll use a lot the word like, or as, or appearance, or likeness, all through this chapter. Um, about 15 times he uses the word like or likeness. Because it's like, well, how do you describe something that you've never ever seen before? You have to relate it to things that you have seen, that, that your listeners have, have seen. So you're trying to kind of give up some kind of a, you know, idea of what this is. Uh, it's just, it's just challenging, you know, to think about it that way. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, you can only just kind of approximate it with saying, well, it's kind of like this. Um, I, I thought this was an interesting analogy. Uh, you know, a seven-year-old who's never tasted uh, a carbonated beverage, never tasted a Coke before. And uh, they gave it to him and said, what does that taste like to you? He said, well, it sort of tastes like your foot's asleep. <laughs> well, you know, how would you describe that? You know, you've never felt it, you know. So you've got to come up with something that, that makes, a, makes it like that. So, so this is not really what he's seeing, but it's like that. So it's got the four faces, the four wings, and the brass hooves. And uh, he describes the faces. So you've got the face of a man uh, going straight forward. Uh, you know, on the right, you've got the face of the lion, face of the bull on the left, face of the eagle at the back. Then you might think about those beings. A lion reminds you of power and rule, dominion. Fierce, majesty, and an eagle reminds you of <clears throat> oversight. Oversight, wonderful vision. Fast. Yeah, very rapid. Uh, the bird of prey, again, kind of a royal, majestic bird. <laughs> a bull reminds you of aggression, aggression power, strength. And man, wisdom, yeah, I mean intelligence. Um, but now, one of the things about this then it, that's kind of interesting is the way this worked, this creature would go straight forward in any direction. If you've got a face facing every direction, then, you know, unless you're just really gifted at walking backwards or sideways, when you turn, you know, if you want to walk over here, you turn. I want to walk back here, I turn. This this being didn't turn. If I wanted to walk this way, it just went that way with that face. If I wanted to go this way, it went that way with that face. You know, isn't that a weird way to think about it? Weird way to look at it? And I think that's part of the point. Is that the movement of these creatures was sort of rapid and immediate. In fact, it says in verse 12, each went straight forward wherever the spirit 
was about to go, they would go without turning as they went. So they have a spirit in them that directs them, and they just go without turning. They're ruled by the spirit, and they're able to instantaneously go in any direction. They don't have to take time to pivot to do it. I believe, really, when it's all said and done, that the fourness of the faces is as much as anything showing us the idea that God can be anywhere at any moment. He doesn't even have to turn to go that direction. So that that's quite a lot to take in. Basically, I see these beings, uh, these four living creatures, as kind of the bearers of God's throne. I think we'll see that here in a minute. I think that, so they're almost like the chariot that the Lord rides above. All right, thoughts and comments on that section here from 4 to 14. I'm grateful that these things can be described. Yeah, I mean, it's good that he tried, and we do get a picture of them, even if maybe the reality would have transcended anything we can imagine. But yeah. Yes, Sid. One of the things that's called in question later in the book is, is God really going to do what he says he's going to do? Because there's, you know, they say every vision fails, and so this immutability of God's purpose that God really does is something that speaks to the problem. Sure, absolutely. God is uh, always capable of executing his plan. That reminded me of one thing I wanted to say. And that is, I don't know how much you uh, hear from skeptics and atheists and things like that, but one of the arguments against the Bible like being really from God and really inspired and really unique is things like this. These beings, are a lot like beings in the Assyrian culture and in Babylonian culture and things like that. They've got their beings that resemble this as well. And so what you see is that Israel, who had kind of a genius for religion anyway, just borrowed some of those religious symbols from those other cultures. Don't think that God is... uh, you know, unique, that he's really revealing something special. Judaism just borrowed from all these pagans as they develop their religious insights and so forth. That's kind of the way that argument works. And if you've never heard it before, and they, they can come up with some pretty good proof that, uh, really, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, they had some things that, uh, that were very similar to this, that you're thinking, you know, wow. That, that's a lot like this. There are quite a few things like that, actually. I mean, there's flood stories in a lot of those ancient cultures. And some of them remind you a lot of the Bible flood story. And they'll say, you see, the Bible just borrowed from those traditions. There's creation stories that are similar, some of them are, to the Bible creation story. And so they try to start building a case that there's nothing really unique about Judaism. It was just kind of a development on the various cultures and their religious, you know, traditions and experiences and things like that. And if you've never heard that argument, it's like they they start giving you proof. I mean, they start showing you, sure enough, it really is true. There there really are. I mean, some of these beings, there's some really like them. 
How do you deal with that? What would your response to that be? Jay? Okay, you're on the right. You're on the right track. Think about it. What? Yes. Yeah, I forgot your name. When they took these people to Babylon, Daniel and his friends, and I don't know about the other people, but they had three years of training in their culture and their language, so they would be subjected to all of this. But of course, the problem is this is supposed to be a revelation. And if it's just something that they've adopted from Babylonian culture, then how is this a revelation from God? My guess. <laughs> the, the other cultures could have stolen it from the Bible. Or maybe better yet, the other cultures could have stolen it from the Bible. There might be a little refinement on that. What probably happened? You, you know, you've got all these things that are true. You had these creatures cherubim, I believe they were, back in the Garden of Eden. And and if that's true, if there really were creatures like this, if there really was a flood like that, if there's really a creation like that, then wouldn't you expect peoples to know about that? I mean, like everybody experienced the flood. I mean, you know, all the people that were on the earth <laughs> experienced the flood. And uh, so everybody is a descendant of people who went through the flood. Now, if they don't have God's inspiration, they probably passed that down and kind of, you know, like fish stories that grew and changed and whatever evolved. But that, that there would be some common basis. Well, they all went through the same experience. And, and the same thing with these and other things. It, it, from my perspective, believing that that, God really reveals himself in this way and that those things really happened, I would expect that all peoples on the earth would preserve some memory of some of those things and they would have some things very much like what you've got in the Bible. Then, because it's been passed down, the scriptures, because they're actually directly revealed by God. So don't be surprised when they come up with parallels. There are parallels. I think there ought to be parallels if the story's true. So when, when, when people come up with, with skeptical uh, arguments, don't be shaken. Just stop and think through them and realize, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, but it doesn't prove anything. Does that make some sense, Jake? Same thing could be said about morality. And, sure. Uh, yeah, well, well, Jesus preached this stuff, so did John B. and all these other people. I'm like, okay, well, God's going to turn new man's heart. Sure, and he revealed various, even moral principles to Noah, and so forth. Yes, exactly. Okay? Alright, look at the next section, 15 to uh, 21. Now as I looked at the living beings, behold, there is one wheel on the earth beside the living beings, for each of the four of them. Uh, the appearance of the wheels and their workmanship was like sparkling barrel, and all four of them had the same form, their appearance and workmanship being as if one wheel were within another. Whenever they moved, they moved in any of their four directions without turning as they moved. As for their rims, they were lofty and awesome, 
and the rims of all four of them were full of eyes round about. Whenever the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them. And whenever the living beings rose from the earth, the wheels rose also. Wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go in that direction. And the wheels rose close beside them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Whenever those went, these went. And whenever those stood still, these stood still. And whenever those rose from the earth, the wheels rose close beside them. For the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. So I'm seeing this as the living beings are actually their um, their means of mobility are these wheels. So this is uh, kind of the wheels underneath the, the living beings. But this is an odd wheel deal. <laughs> you know, you got a wheel inside a wheel. So, uh, you know, that's a little hard to, to grasp. But it's like it can go this way or this way. You know, interchangeably. You know, normally a wheel will have to turn to go a different direction. But if you had a wheel in a wheel, then it can kind of go any direction it wants to. It's like a ball. The only problem is when you have something connected to it, then it would have to swivel. You can't have just perfect freedom of movement when you've got something connected. But of course, God's physics can defy earthly physics. And so however you want to think about it, it's like it just could go in any direction at any moment, controlled by the same spirit that was in the living beings. So the wheels and the living beings just move right together. Whenever the spirit moves them, they can go any direction they want. No pivoting necessary, not by the wheels, not by the living creatures, instantaneous movement in any direction. Stressing again the idea that God could be anywhere executing his will at any place. Don't think of the, the God is just limited to the temple or to the land of Israel. He's uh, well able to move. Thoughts and comments? Yeah, Jake. Uh, to me, the things that, that he sees are the, uh, are, is his will. Sure, exactly. So God is the one who's directing the living creatures. The wheels are sort of directed by, animated by the spirit of the Lord that's sending them wherever he wants them to go. So really it's showing you that God's the one uh, that is directing that movement. In verse 4 and 14, is that higher than glowing metal? Is that supposed to be the spirit that leads them? Maybe, or the Lord himself. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Other questions or comments? All right, how about 22 to 28? Now over the heads of living beings, there is something like an expanse, like an awesome gleam of crystal, spread out over the heads. Under the expanse of their wings were stretched out straight, one toward the other, 
Each one also had two wings covering its body on, on the one side and on the other. And I also heard the sound of, the other, of their wings like the sound of abundant waters as they went. And the voice of the Almighty, a sound of tumult like the sound of an army camp. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on it, which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with an appearance of a man. And I noticed from the appearance of his horns and upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around and within it. And from the appearance of his horns downward, I saw something like fire, and there was a radiance about him. As the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds of a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When, and when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard the voice speaking. Okay. So, you had the, the, this, these creatures, the wheels under them. Then you had this expanse. You had this distance. And, and way above them, but apparently they were carrying this throne of the Lord. Now, this is quite, you know, it's, it's really hard to envision for me. I mean, there's so many details, but it's all spectacular. It's glorious. Uh, you, you hear the sound of the wings like a waterfall. It's a very loud sound. It's like their motor is really, uh, you know, a powerful motor. You think about an airplane motor or something like that. And, uh, you know, way above the, the, the expanse, uh, above these, these four living creatures is this throne. And, and there's a figure on the throne, sort of like a human type figure. And you see the glowing metal that looks like fire all around it and, Something like fire from his loins and downward, and there's just a glow around him. Can you imagine what that what that throne and that being on that throne way up there looked like to Ezekiel? And he saw like the rainbow, uh, just so bright, so radiant, uh, just just really wow. I, I I just don't think there's any way that that. These words, or certainly my words, can really do justice to that. I mean, this is probably something that, you know, we need to sit around and kind of, you know, dream about a little bit. Try to see it in our mind in whatever way we can. And just feel how overwhelming this would be. You just feel like, wow. You know, this is just uh, unbelievable. It's really, uh, really overwhelming to us. And uh, so... So, you know, that, that's just, just a remarkable uh, thing. And so look at what it says. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. That, that It's like he didn't see the Lord. He didn't even see the glory of the Lord. He didn't even see the likeness of of the glory of the Lord. He saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And what did he do? Fell dead, yeah. Fell down like in a coma. Uh, that's how overwhelming this was. Can you imagine starting your work for the Lord with that? Whoa. That would really affect you. 
we need to have it affect us. He, he, he painted this picture for us verbally so that we could have it affect us as well. But, but you can see how you just be knocked out. You know, I mean, can you imagine if we just got a glimpse of God now? I mean, we just, we just melt. You know, we, we couldn't handle it. We couldn't stand it. It would be so much more glorious and, and bright and overwhelming than we could even imagine. And so, you know, really, I mean, I think the thing that not only Ezekiel, but these captives needed was not a different situation, but a different perspective on their situation. They needed to see the Lord on his throne. They needed to see what a powerful, awesome, glorious, amazing Lord he is. That, 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 that's, to me, that's kind of what we're seeing here. Thoughts and comments? The uh, similarities of the visions of the throne of God in Isaiah and Revelation here be interesting to put those in parallel columns. And it's interesting how similar the reaction of everybody who ever caught any kind of a appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord had. They were all overwhelmed. Wasn't anybody who just laughed that off or, you know, wow, wow, it was just amazing. Transfiguration. Yeah, transfiguration. He uh, he looked wired. You know, he, he had this this glow about him, and uh, I think you know it's it's this unapproachable light, and it's uh, you, know, you look at snow, and it's wider than snow. You look at snow and how bright it is, and you can't even hardly look at it because it's just so bright. Well, what if it's worse than that? Not even worse. Than that. I mean, what if it's more powerful, brighter, even more powerful, even harder to look at? You know, it's, it's hard to imagine. We just, we really have a hard time with, with having a concept of the glory of God, the majesty of God. You know, just power, yeah, I, we have some ideas of power. I don't know that we think too much about glory and, and just brightness. Um, those are a little harder for me to, you know, wrap my mind around. And yet I think that's really what we're seeing here. Along with seeing the intense mobility and just certainly power and all that, we're really seeing the majesty. The Lord is awesome. He's amazing. And we really need to see that. Everything looks different when you see God this way. Nothing's the same after this. Other thoughts? Yes. Right. It seems like there's a consistency that God hides glory in Packages that are very unappealing. Yes. So it's like there's a focus that seems verse 25 and 28 on the voice, and so like the angels let down their wings when it comes to a stop, which seems to emphasize there's a stillness and there's a ceasing of this great noise of the waterfall when the one on the throne is about to speak. You know, Ezekiel throughout this book doesn't look impressive. He does a lot of things that don't look very great or extravagant, but yet this is the appearance of the glory of where those words are coming from. Amen. And we really need to try to, you know, just let ourselves think more and more about God as he really is. So much of our attitude and our heart is going to be shaped by how we see the Lord.
And I am quite aware that there are several people here who know a lot more about Ezekiel than what I do. So, you know, you feel free uh, to um, comment and to uh, help out in, uh, in what we're saying here. Uh, so that's what he begins with. That's, that's the inaugural vision. Like God's not done with Ezekiel. That's, that's just what he saw. Now he gets to listen to this being, and uh, he's got some things to tell him. So chapter 2, verses 